Hello and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson and every Thursday this summer I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. This episode is the first of a double bill that's going to look at how cutting-edge medical research has transformed not just people's health but the way we understand what it means to be healthy. They're both stories about how seeing patients as people and not just bodies has inspired our researchers' work and led to massive changes in the health, well-being and dignity of millions of people around the world. We're starting this time with the long fight for recognition of the fact that if you can't detect the HIV virus in someone because they are on antiretroviral meds, or ART, then they can't pass it on to others. In fact, we've known for over 20 years that ART can reduce that risk, but more recent studies, like the one we are going to talk about today, have shown for sure that suppressive ART can eliminate HIV transmission risk completely. U Equals U is a global campaign to spread that simple but revolutionary message. Undetectable equals untransmissible. Yet, for millions of people in very different places, with very different lives, the fear and stigma of their HIV diagnosis continues to affect not just their health, but everything. From their jobs, to their friendships, to their ability to love and be loved even, sometimes, their freedom. Proving something in a lab and showing it works reliably in everyday life are two very different things. To make real change happen, a huge trial was needed with real couples, one HIV positive, one HIV negative. This was the challenge that Professors Alison Roger and Andrew Phillips set out to conquer at the Institute for Global Health at UCL. Thanks in part to the proof from the UCL Partner Study, today U Equals U has over a thousand member organisations based in 105 countries, and its message is embedded in HIV treatment guidelines around the world. I spoke with the people who made the U Equals U campaign possible, a pioneering partnership between Professor Alison Roger, whose groundbreaking research first proved the science behind U Equals U, and Bruce Richman, activist and founder of the Prevention Access Campaign. Bruce has been living with HIV for almost 20 years. Bruce, I just wanted to start by asking you if I was to go back to, say, the year 2000 and to have asked you then what it meant to be diagnosed with HIV, what it meant to live with HIV, what kind of things would you have told me? Well, thanks, Rosie. First, thanks so much for, for having me here. It's, it's, it's great to be with you and, and so excited to, to, to share this, this podcast with my dear friend and my hero, Allison, Roger, I'm just, this is um, really wonderful. Um, so I, you know, back when I was diagnosed around, you know, in 2003, it was a, it was a very different time. I, um, I didn't know that much about uh, the treatment for HIV. Of course, I grew up uh, in the eighties and, you know, early nineties um, with the, Fear of you know terror of acquiring HIV and, and and just also feeling that ultimately it was it was something that uh, you know everyone who was gay would end up getting. Um, I sort of had that grew up with this internalized homophobia and in a very small town that was um, fairly um, conservative and not accepting. And you know when I when I was diagnosed with HIV, it was this this sort of this double whammy of you know here i am her person who is 
is is gay and now has HIV. I'm a you know I'm a I'm a I'm a failure. I'm you know I'm irresponsible and terrible. I am for this. It was sort of this self-hating thing. But I also didn't really know as much about treatments being available, at least in in, in the parts of the world and in, in higher income parts of the world. Fortunately, I was in a place where I could have taken medication. That you know, early testing, you know, early treatment wasn't the 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 common thing at that time, but you know there were places in the world where access to treatment was was extremely much more limited than it was today because like we're seeing with covid higher income countries were porting the medications and were concerned about how the medications would be used in lower income countries if people would understand how to use the medication and would people stop being adherent and there'd be you know resistance so there was this this whole colonialist kind of greed around access to treatment that was 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 happening around that time in the early early 2000s when I was diagnosed. But being that I was fortunate to to have treatment, I didn't I didn't want to start treatment. I didn't want to deal with being positive. I didn't want to talk about it. I stayed in the closet, and I really didn't allow myself to love. Um, I I didn't. I didn't want to love someone and be intimate with someone and have that fear. So I, I completely withdrew and until roughly a, it, it, nine years later uh, when I, I learned about U equals U in 2012. And I, my doctor told me that I couldn't pass it on. It was impossible. I was taking medication at that time. I had just started. I was I was undetectable. and. And that changed that changed everything for me. It changed my my perception about my opportunities to love, to have children, to have sex without terror, without this fear. And um, and, and and that really got me sort of this on this path to to want to share that with everyone. You know, now that I, I knew I was very privileged to know I was connected to the medical establishment and doctors who who were very familiar with the research. Um, at that at that time, there wasn't there wasn't you know certainly wasn't the groundswell of evidence that there was there was in the last the last five years. Um, but I had a, a doctor who was you know was was sort of confident enough in his own um, analysis of the of the the research at the time to be able to share it with me. Um, and 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 that's when I sort of started this crusade. Bruce, it's a very powerful testimony. I think of of how you know the the world we grow up in shapes our own understanding of who we are and of why things happen to us and what that means about us which we all have but this was something which was so as as you again powerfully said it was so um acute it was so dangerous um so it was just that much more pointed and and uh, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about how the world around you had shaped that that internalized fear, that internalized stigma. Yeah, I, I, I mean, around that time, I mean, there was still the, and there still is to, to a large extent today, the, the you know, misperceptions and stigmatizing you know, articles in the media and popular culture, um, and just a, a lack of lack of understanding basic understanding of, of of even how hiv is transmitted i mean we even even today people still are unaware that you know you can't get hiv from a kiss you know there was a recent study in in um in the uk that showed 50 percent of of adults thought that you could still get it from from kissing 
so you know at, at that time it was it was it was still considered this you know a, a disease that where you know it was it would ultimately lead to a, a tragic and and horrible death so there was um you know the uh, you know people would stay around stay away and from people who are hiv positive wouldn't date people who are hiv positive um the criminalization laws started really going into effect around that time um where people were um you know subject to to lengthy even prison sentences for uh, non-disclosure of their their status even if there was no transmission and no no possibility of transmission um, like that, you know, still continues today. So the popular culture messages and around HIV were, were, were really very negative and fear-based, um, still coming out of a, a time in, in the 80s where the, the government was just not, you know, res responsive. And I mean, things have, have changed a lot, but the stigma is still enduring. A lack of education um, is, is still fairly severe. One study recently in the United States showed that 30% of young Americans who were not living with HIV would rather not socialize or date someone who is living with HIV. And these, you know, these are young people who you expect to be more, you know, uh, accepting and 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 kind of um, progressive of this younger generation. So the, the stigma still existed. Stigma to, you know, discourages people from getting tested. Stigma discourages people from getting the treatment, going to clinics to get the treatment that we need, discourages us from sharing our status. Um, so it's something we really need to continue to work on. The stigma was was really horrendous back when I was diagnosed, but it's still continuing. And we have a lot of data to, to show that. Um, could we go back to that moment where you were told by your doctor about U equals U and you were finding out about this? What was the general reception of that research at the time? I mean, in 2012, there really wasn't the evidence base. The partner study hadn't been presented yet. I think Allison presented that in 2014. You know, there, there were these doctors like mine who was very well connected in the field who could, you know, look at the evidence that was there and, and draw a conclusion, but there really wasn't. I, I wouldn't blame anyone for not talking about it in 2012. I think that, you know, that we really didn't, I, I don't, wouldn't expect public health authorities like the, you know, the CDC or World Health Organization or any of these to, to have made a confirmation back then. Um, there was the Swiss statement in 2008, which was a very bold um, statement confirming that when someone uh, was, was, um, was virally suppressed and didn't have any, um, co-occurring STIs that they were not able to transmit the virus, but that, that was widely discredited. Alison, as a researcher, what led you to be doing this work and working in this space in general? And yeah, what was the evidence base that you you were building on as we head into the 2010s? Well, so. I think, I mean, it's just, uh, Bruce has made, made the reason behind the research and the reason why we want to do the research really powerfully. So I think, I mean, I'm sure Bruce, you'll agree that, you know, most of the best research, HIV works slightly differently to other fields and that we all kind of work together, that people with lived experience are very much involved in a lot of the research and that's how we've always worked. So we knew that this was a really important question. We knew that stigma was a major issue and we knew that it impacted in all areas of 
people's lives, as, as Bruce has said, you know, you've got the shame and fear of sexual transmission and you worry about telling people you've got HIV and in some areas of the world, you know, you can be criminalised just for having HIV. So there's a lot of, of areas that impact on people living with HIV. Um, and as Bruce said, the Swiss statement came out in 2008. Um, and as he said, they, they basically stated these were well-respected Swiss scientists and researchers. And they stated that if you were suppressed, it wasn't possible to transmit sexually and there was a huge amount of discussion and debate and a lot of people felt the evidence just wasn't there so we knew that viral load is the single biggest determinant of transmission risk for HIV and we've known that since 2000 but saying that it reduces transmission risk is really different to saying it eliminates transmission risk so I think when the Swiss statement came out I was chatting to Andrew Phillips who was involved in the research he's a colleague of mine and we were just sort of saying if, if you really need the evidence to underpin this statement because if you're going to change people's hearts and minds around this and actually impact on HIV stigma, you really need to provide the evidence and you're going to need big, well-designed studies to do this. So 052 that Bruce mentioned was, you know, it was the landmark study in this field, which they broke the blind of the study in 2011 because they could see the impact and there was a 93% lower risk of giving your partner HIV if you were on treatment. But that's not U equals U, that's not 100%. And also people used condoms and there was very few gay men in 052. I think there was 33 couples, wasn't there, Bruce, out of 1800 or something. So we really very much felt that th there was a role for the partner studies, but we we're going to have to be really big, really well-designed studies to get the answer to this, to be able to convince not just people living with HIV, but the general population. I mean, the study Bruce talked about, about teenagers still thinking you get HIV from kissing is quite shocking, actually. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is um, doing a study that will change a culture, aren't you, really? When, when you put it like that, that's a huge burden of proof. <laughs> You've got to have a really, really, um, you know, uh, watertight and, and really, really comprehensive study that is going to be able to shift that mountain. Um, I wonder if you could describe what you designed then in order to be able to respond to that challenge. How, what did the partner study look like? Yeah, we were in, we were basically interested in what was the risk of within couple HIV transmission through sex when they didn't use condoms and when the positive partner was on um, what we call suppressive antiretroviral therapy. So that's when they're on treatment for HIV, but it suppresses the copies of virus in their blood to what we call undetectable. And that threshold can vary depending on your lab assay, but we use less than 200 copies and that's well established, that's a threshold. Um, and we didn't want to do a randomised controlled trial because you can't randomise people to use condoms or not. So what we did was called an observational study. So phase one, we recruited zero different couples that were gay couples and couples that had heterosexual sex. And that was the first four years from 2010 to 2014. And then the second phase, we just looked at gay zero different couples up to 2018. And as Bruce said, we presented early results 2014 and the final phase one results 2016. And we had about 550 zero different heterosexual couples and about 350 gay couples. And there was no HIV transmission within couples. And we know that because we looked at the linkage, the viruses, um, and that was despite, you know, having sex 58,000 times without condoms. So we got but to the overall, end of that. Not, overall. Yeah. So we got to that study. But what, what you have to have, just because you don't find any transmissions doesn't mean that it can't occur. So what you do is you have to look at the precision of your estimate and you look at your confidence around that estimate. And so for people having heterosexual sex, because there were more of them in the study, we were much sure of the result. 
And it, it was something like, you know, you'd have to have condomless sex for about 150 years to have the outside possibility of one transmission. So that, that, that was effectively the study done, but we just didn't have the numbers of gay couples in the study to provide the same um, level of evidence for gay men. And so that's why we kept going. I was thinking, actually, as I was listening to you, you d- discussing um, the representation of, of the participants in, in that in those studies, um, particularly the ones that had come before yours. Some people who are listening to this might find it surprising that there was an underrepresentation of same-sex couples, and particularly men who have sex with men, and why that might be, and then how you went about engaging the community in that recruitment process. No, it's a great question. Um, so when we set up the study, we the, the question came from the community and we had two people with lived experience who were HIV positive on the executive committee who very much advised us throughout the whole thing, setting up the study and recruiting. Obviously, when we set up the study, the first phase in 2010, the research wasn't there. You obviously go through ethics committees and we very much had to make it clear that this was a transmission study. And we recruited people who'd chosen not to use condoms and we we just observed, we collected information, we did blood tests um, on both partners, one the negative person to make sure they were negative and the positive person to look at the viral load. They didn't use condoms, they didn't use pepper prep, but these are people who had chosen to do that. And if you think about it, we spent 20, 30 years saying to people, you must use condoms, you know, HIV is highly infectious. People had a lot of, you know, um, self-perception of stigma. Um, it was just very, we knew it was going to be a challenging study to recruit to. Um, but, you, you know, we just, we very much used the community to publicise the study. People wanted to come into the study, you know, they were very welcome. It was a very sort of um, light touch study. It didn't take a lot of time or visits, um, but it took a lot of time to recruit people. And so at the end of phase one, that w- that was the grant funding that we had. And so by the end of it, we just knew we hadn't got the answer for gay men. We had it to provide absolutely rock solid evidence. So I got another grant and we continued with gay men for another four years. And that's what gave us the partner two results just in gay men. Um, And basically what that showed was um, we had about 800 couples by that stage. And overall they'd sex without condoms 76,000 times. And again, no link transmission. Some of the negative partners did become positive, but by looking at the virus in the negative partner who became positive and the positive partner in treatment, we could see that it came from outside the relationship. So that was really it. You know, it was a massive, massive study. The precision around the estimate was really tight. And so we knew that was it. That was the end. There was zero risk. And to be able to say that as a scientist, you know, to prove a negative is quite something. But I, th- I think we got there. I think you agree that, Bruce, I think the partner study was the tipping point, wasn't it? Um, in terms oh, of our approach absolutely. to messaging and belief about, you know, you equals you, and that was it. And I think the shift happened, didn't it? That it actually just became accepted. I think it was Matthew Hodgson. He's got such great quotes, doesn't he? Where he talked about, <laughs> <laughs> he does, you, you do too, you're amazing. But Matthew, I think he said that 2018 would be forever remembered as a conference when you equals you moved from an activist rally and cry to the scientifically established position. And I think we all felt that, didn't we? 2018 is what we needed as a, as the U equals U movement. We we had been, you know, fighting for people to to say this and to talk about U equals U clearly. And we were still at that time in 2018. We had we had people threatening to sue the campaign because they didn't you know believe that you know they thought we were saying something that was harmful and not science based. We had a, a journalist who would go, was coming after us from every angle to kind of disprove 
that uh, that we were, you know, the, the campaign, and also to say that there was there was still a risk. There was there's no zero risk in science. We'd hear people say, so when you took the initiative and were so proactive to integrate the U equals U messaging to be clear in every aspect of, you know, the press release, the press conference, the journal article, and then saying from stage in front of thousands of your peers that it's very, very clear the risk is zero and that the time for excuses is over. That was a major shift in the history of the epidemic. Those words that you said, you know, the time for excuses is over were, were taken to the streets in Kampala in a, in a march and, and, and there were in campaigns in Australia and in Spain and, and all over the, you know, so that act of, I would say it's tremendous courage to, to come out and, and particularly saying zero risk, the risk is zero in a field that is pushes so hard against the concept of, of zero risk and is stuck in, you know, statistical origami around it. And um, <laughs> you made it so, so clear. So we, you know, you're very kind, the, Bruce, but I'm just a foot soldier. I just did the, did the work and followed your lead. <laughs> no, you're, you are you're the ultimate communicator. The, I, how often do activists, you know, have, we have patriot people who have pictures of you on their profiles of, you know, oh. so, you know, they're so proud to have met Alison Roger or just your photo up um, and, and, you know, using your quotes around the world in their advocacy uh, to, for, you know, to get the truth out about our bodies. So I think people, you know, the, the, the impact of, you know, your, your, the science could have just stayed on the shelf, really. I mean, you, it really could have. But, but it didn't, Bruce, because of the way you did it too. I mean, you remember at the end of the conference, I think for both of us, that was quite an emotional conference, wasn't it? And presentation, because it was it was, it was, was just shifting it into that scientifically established. And, and we both knew with the research. And then you asked that question at the end. The conference was, it's the, it was the World AIDS Conference. So this is the conference where a lot of the community is present. It's not just the research conference, but it's certainly the most, um, you know, important AIDS conference in, you know, in, in the world. It happens every two years. And so we had a lot of our activists were there from, from many parts of the world. And, you know, these are, these are people who are, you know, at risking their personal, professional reputations and sometimes their lives to talk about U equals U. We were there and still, still in the midst of the, a lot of fighting. We knew partner was the big buzz at that conference. And, and the, and, you know, all of us were, were really, you know, anticipating on the edge of our seat of how this would be presented. You know, it was surreal to, to hear Ellison talk about how the science validates U equals U during the press conference, ending on that and being so clear. Um, and and then on stage in front of thousands and thousands of people in front of her peers, you know, who are, you know, uh, scientists in front of the community to, to be so clear and say that, it's very clear the risk is zero. To, to time for excuses is over. Was it was almost an out of one of those out of body moments. Is this is this really happening? Or did we? How did we get here? It, it was. You know, I, I've I've showed that video of our conversation. Of um, you know, I went at, I asked Allison, what would you say to healthcare providers who are still withholding this information? Her response was absolutely unequivocal. That, that this that we have to promote this. It's very clear that when someone is, is, is virally suppressed, they're sexually non-infectious, the risk is zero. And the time, the time for excuses is over. She repeated that. And then she acknowledged the campaign 
from the stage and this to having a researcher acknowledge you know a, a movement led by people living with HIV meant so much to, to so many of us uh, who you know it's this is this is a very radical movement and and we that validation was just it, it was it's hard to even explain. I don't have the words to even explain how important it was. I, I usually cry when I show that video <laughs> presentations. Um, I think both Allison, of us were I was quite just... emotional. <laughs> Alison, what, what is it like as a researcher, but just as a person, to know what what that means to so many people? As a, as a researcher, as an academic, and as a clinician, you you just try to want to make lives a little bit easier um, for people who are living with HIV. And it was such an important question and we had got the answer that we needed. Um, and you suddenly realise, I think that's really, Bruce, when you and I really started trying to think about how we could get the results out as wide as possible because you saw the impact and it was really it was really hard, wasn't it, in presenting at a scientific conference, which can be quite staid. And I presented the results and then people stood up and clapped. And they were the activists, and you suddenly realised how much this meant to people. And I think I made it through to the end of the <laughs> presentation. But um, it was just the knowledge, and even now when I'm in clinic, even now, you know, that was 2018, four years later, and, you know, you meet someone for the first time, and I usually talk about U equals U, you know, if I diagnose them, or they're a new patient, or, you know, if I haven't seen them before. And so many people still don't know, and you still get people crying in clinic, because it's like this weight is lifted, isn't it, Bruce? It's just... Yeah, it's it's remarkable, and I think, yeah, I just feel a bit a bit lucky that I was involved in this, and actually, you know, we got the result that we needed, and that was really thanks to all the thousands and thousands of couples as well who came into the study. It was a big study. There's a very powerful story of how, um, you know, that relationship between researchers and the community can bring about remarkable things. I think um, I. I, th I want to just pick up on something because I'm really keen to talk about the campaign actually and about how you have worked together because I think lots of people would find that very interesting. It would be quite surprising perhaps to some to hear that even though there was this increasing body of evidence behind U equals U, um, that you needed to say, you know, the time for excuses is over, that, you know, that this, this information should be made available and that it, it implies it wasn't. And... I want to just talk a little bit now about, yeah, the campaign and the political, the political side of this. Why weren't um, health providers, why weren't clinicians or, um, you know, governments being bolder with this? Why were they um, holding back? And you alluded to this a little bit, Bruce, before. Um, and how did that inform how you two work together going forward? What I was told very directly by folks in public health and head of a very large clinic in DC, they'd say, you know, look, we we believe U equals U is true, um, but we, we don't want to share it with people. And there are two reasons. Number one is then our patients will stop using condoms and there's already a rise of syphilis and resistant gonorrhea and all these concerns about STI. So that's number one. Number two, uh, we're worried that our, our patients who lose their health insurance or stop their medication for some reason will think that they're still undetectable and then they'll transmit HIV. So number one, lie to people so they don't get another STI. 
um, and try to control their behavior instead of educate them and let them know that, you know, that being undetectable doesn't prevent other STIs. So number one is sort of the social engineering and control people with HIV rather than giving them the information that they, we need to make our own health decisions. And then number two was people with HIV are just too stupid to understand what U equals U means. So as health educators, let's just give up and not tell them. The other area which I really think that Allison had the most to do with to sort of put this to bed was the, the not believing the science. Now we can, you know, point to the the evidence, particularly, you know, really the partner study showing that. So it's, it's, but the paternalism still continues. Alison, what are you seeing? Because you you speak with clinicians all yeah, the time. Yeah, no, I do. I mean, I think I think I think the issue is that scientists and clinicians are kind of trained to be cautious, aren't they? So they usually need to be completely super convinced by any evidence before making sort of factual statements. Um, and I also think you're absolutely right, Bruce. I mean, people were placing moral value on data, which is not their job. I mean, the job is just to communicate how robust the science is. But I think there were some key opinion leaders, weren't they? Tony Fauci was great. You know, once Tony Fauci started saying concept of U equals U is the foundation to end the HIV epidemic, you know, CDC shifted and it was just almost these incremental steps, wasn't it? Really sort of based on your sort of your drive to get this out. And actually just there were a couple of key moments, weren't there? And I think particularly Tony Fauci was was pivotal in this. How do you work together? Uh, and, and obviously it's not just you two, but how do you work to translate those scientific findings into things that can be used by a policymaker or, um, or uh, you know, a, a health services planner or indeed somebody um, living with HIV? Take uh, Tony Fauci, um, for example, how how did that come about that he he had the evidence in front of him from you i mean the presentation was 2018 and then we did the lancet publication 2019 i think we really thought about how to maximize impact prevention access campaign were involved and ucl and, and different organizations and really trying to blitz the media and i think for 24 hours it was global wall to wall wasn't it and i yes, certainly yeah. got asked to give a lot of media presentations and the, the reason i could see it was successful and this is just my small aspect was actually I was being asked to to talk on television channels and radio channels that were really nowhere near this world, and you know people phoning in who'd, who'd never heard of of this and whose really view of HIV was stuck in the 80s, and it was really just trying to. Obviously, it's really important with people living with HIV and partners and, and the community, but actually just trying to get it out into the general public, just trying to destigmatize HIV, um, and, and I think that was really important to us. I mean, obviously. Bruce is amazing and this, he has really enabled all of the things to happen, including Tony Fauci. But I think Tony Fauci being a scientist, I think having the level of evidence he could understand and he could see, and he was very happy to make the jump with, you know, to the risk is zero. So I think I think the evidence, you had to have that in place. And then Bruce and Prevention Access Campaign communicating and really just persevering against quite strong opposition. Um, and then you just gradually people tip and all of a sudden, a few years later, it's it's, it's generally accepted. Um, the, the way I work, I mean, I, I, I only do what I can do. I talk about the science a lot. I, I talk anywhere that I'm asked to talk and go through the science because I think if people understand how robust it is, then I think people have confidence. The British HIV Association have done a lot of work in terms of how to communicate it. Um, Michael Brady, who's head of THT, has done a lot of work in terms of, you know, how to communicate with people living with it. So there's a lot of people 
in this field and we're all just trying to do what we can. I, I think that's fair, isn't it, Bruce? Yeah, I think that's, that's really well said. And, you know, I can, I can talk about the science and but sound a bit self-interested um, as someone with HIV saying, I can't pass it on. But when you have a, you know, such a brilliant scientist speaking and being able to explain and bring that credibility, whether it's to uh, policymakers who need to know about U equals U if they're deciding to allocate funds for access to treatment or other kinds of services that help people with HIV stay healthy. Um, the policymakers need to know that when people with HIV are healthy and undetectable, we also can't pass it on. And that's science. That's that's a great public health strategy. It's so effective to go to a whether you know to a um, whether you're talking to HIV clinicians or just to community members or to government officials. You know, we we need that credibility to show that the science is real and that they need to make decisions about informing people with HIV about U equals U or, or, or encouraging clinicians to talk about it or expanding access to treatment and care that the, that the, the science is real. And we... what, I'm, what I'm hearing is that you it's sort of like, I don't know, two wheels of a bicycle, if you want to put it that way, that, you know, the, these are two different types of expertise and they come together, you know, li the lived experience and the scientific knowledge come together to create a really powerful message. I want to just finish up by asking about how you take that global, because, you know, the lived experience of people uh, living with HIV is such a massive part of why campaigns like yours are so hard hitting, why they are so credible, as, as well as there being the strong partnership with the scientific community. But obviously, you know, the message and the messenger are so entwined when it comes to HIV um, uh, campaigning and access to treatment and all the rest of it, and, and actually the stigma as well, which we started with. And that looks different in different places. So I would really love to hear about how U equals U and you, Alison, you know, on, on the global stage, how you translate this work across different contexts, how you engage with people living in very different places, living in very different societies sometimes. I wish um, you're the one to answer this. I mean, you, you can communicate effortlessly across, but it's also involving people with lived experience in different communities um, who can speak successfully to their own. But I think it's a universal message and it's so simple, um, but so sort of liberating for people who hear it and understand it. I'll, I'll hand over to Bruce because he is <laughs> the master communicator. Well, I first I would say I, my quotes have not been going around the world <laughs> like lecture as I have so I right back at you thank you for that and also I really have to credit Gus Cairns who the journalist from from AIDS map who brainstormed the whole concept of U equals U um, with me in February of 2016. Yeah it's exactly how Allison was saying is that that the it communities really are translate the message. So we work with people on the ground. The campaign is now in 105 countries and we We've, we've now actually worked in 28 different countries, um, still a lot, many more to go, with, with organizations on the ground to help them, you know, understand the, the science and to translate the science into ways that work with their particular culture. So, for instance, in some places where they're, um, you know, it's very religious and conservative, they don't really talk about sex. They talk about babies. They, they focus more on 
the story about people can have can have babies and have children, you know, conceived children. We say um, focus on the the policy aspect of the prevention access is when people are on treatment they can't you know aren't passing it on. And so it's kind of like understanding who are the right messengers. There's in Kampala, Uganda, um, the the government said this was a a, a campaign that was pushing the gay agenda and um, was run by you know white gay people. So we really stay away from um, doing presentations in Uganda and we make sure, you know, it's, it's really about having the right, the right messengers and partners on the ground who are really the experts in, in, in translating the science in ways that will be understood by the communities they serve. I'm gonna ask you about what your hopes are for your work together in the future. And if there's any words of wisdom that you can pass on to anybody who's trying to follow in your footsteps um, about how to have an impact in this way. Um, I think as I said at the beginning, it's listening to people with lived experience. You know, what questions matter to them? I think that's why I've always been a sort of um, clinically active researcher rather than lab-based, which is obviously hugely important, but it's understanding the issues and questions that matter to people. Um, and that makes your research relevant from the outset and also involving people living with HIV in your research from the very beginning. And then the one thing I've really learned from Bruce is thinking about how to maximise the impact of your research. Um, you know, it's not just about the science, it's actually about the impact or the benefit for people living with HIV. And I guess the final word is find a Bruce. <laughs> makes your communication a lot more effective and a lot more fun. <laughs> For us, it's finding your champions in unexpected places. Um, in my old sort of activist mind, it's you know would think that a a, a you know cisgender HIV negative woman, uh, white woman, uh, you know from Scotland living in England would be <laughs> such a tremendous champion and and an ally and have such an impact on on this global movement. Um, and I think you know knowing how to how to Kind of cross over to find and, and hold on to those allies who how to how to make those bridges between activism and science uh, we need we really need each other and you can see from the you know, really the impact of this you know, relationship between between allison and the movement of u equals u how much how much the world is changing you know and we'll continue to change it together Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for your time and for sharing your story. Um, it's really inspiring and um, very moving. And it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Rosie, for asking us. It's been great to talk about this. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It was really wonderful to be here. I could keep talking all day. That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, where I will be talking to oncologist Professor Giant Vajer about what inspired him to create a one-shot breast cancer radiotherapy machine. If you can't wait until then, and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I want to thank Professor Alison Roger and Bruce Richmond, our guests, and of course you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.